Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about your brain and how to take care of it. It's certainly not something most of us wake up and think about as we take for granted our most complex and incredible organ. So in today's episode, I'm going to speak with Dr. Mark Williams, an internationally recognized professor of cognitive neuroscience on how to maintain a healthy brain. He has been at the cutting edge of developing computational brain imaging analysis and virtual reality in research. Having worked at MIT and taught at other notable universities, today Mark joins us by way of Australia to discuss neuroplasticity and how to get the most out of your brain. He has a new book titled The Connected Species, How Understanding the Evolution of Our Brain Can Change the World, which will be coming out in August of this year. This episode is brought to you by Weekly Wealthy Wisdom. Join the thousands who have already subscribed to my weekly newsletter and receive insights on my latest findings for leading a healthy and wealthy life. Emailed right to you for free every Monday, head on over to www.briancaderna.com and click subscribe to Weekly Wealthy Wisdom. Now, without further ado, here's Dr. Mark Williams. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited because, I mean, I think this is pretty fascinating stuff. And so are you done with the book? Or are you just kind of waiting for all the, the marketing and publishing or, or are there still some final touches on that? Yeah, no, the Gailey proofs went back uh, about two weeks ago. So, um, and that's it. Yeah. For me. Um, so yeah, nice. now I just get a big list of from the media guys about what I got to do after once <laughs> it's actually published. Yeah. A yeah. few, few book uh, launches and so on. So it's, it's a fun time at the moment. Everything, all the hard work's done. Yeah, congratulations. I know <laughs> I just you. came out with a book a few months ago and I know it's uh it's a long journey to do so. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. It's my first uh, uh venture into into a general interest audience too. So it's been uh, uh interesting trying to change change the way I uh I write, you know, spent yeah. 25 years working out how to write as an academic and now I've got to try and write so that everybody can understand it and get away from that academic writing style. Yeah. Did you find that difficult to kind of translate from, you know, the, the science, the scientific world, if you will, to, you know, just speaking to the general audience out there of how all this is applicable to them? Um, yes and no. It was, it was more of a, um, a bit of a journey, I suppose. But I've always been really keen on um, being accessible to the general audience. Um, you know, I, my background's very much, you know, I come from a very small country town um, and not, none of my family went to university before me. So um, I've always been keen on that. And I also had two great mentors, especially uh, Nancy Camwisher at MIT, who was all about getting science out into the general public. So, um, yeah, it was, I had to get rid of the, the, the uh, academic speak out of it um but I, I don't think i had a huge yeah I, I really enjoyed it to be honest i did really enjoy it and there's a lot of personal stuff in there as well so um it was a lot of fun to get that stuff out too yeah yeah i'm definitely looking forward to it and just to kind of tee things off here can you tell us a little bit about your personal history like 
Did you know when you got into medicine that neuroscience is, you know, what you wanted to pursue? Yeah, great question. Well, I, I, I didn't actually do my, um, I actually, uh, yeah, hated school when I was at school and I, I thought I was quite dumb, to be honest. So <laughs> even going to university wasn't something that I had ever thought of doing when I was younger. Um, grew up in a country town, which was pretty rough and my mother had mental illness um, and my father was a workaholic to sort of avoid all of that. So um, it wasn't until I was 25 that I went back to school and got, you know, went to what, what would be community college in the US and we call it over here, we call it TAFE. Um, yeah, and there was a physics teacher there that saw something in me I'd never seen before um, and convinced me to go to university. I wasn't even gonna go to university then. Uh, so I went to university, started doing both physiology in medicine and um, psychology in science and fell in love with the physiology side of things, fell in love with the neuroscience side of things, which was very early on in those days. So it was a lot of animal research, not so much human research. Um, and so luckily I was sort of at the, at the first wave of that neuroscience in humans, the cognitive neuroscience. Um, and, and yeah, really fell in love with it at that stage. But no, it wasn't something I ever had on my radar until probably third year at university and then I, I got into a really good program, um, which was had just started, and that was on um, it was neurology basically, um, but it was focusing on um, neuroimaging um, and single cell recordings, like combining the two, uh, which is mm. really cool. And then I went on and did the PhD in medicine, and mm. yeah, got into MIT, which was amazing. Started working there, which was really cool. And then that was the end of it, right? <laughs> I was obsessed <laughs> by that. <laughs> that is pretty cool. And so a question I have for you, you know, I'm a, a big fan of philosophy and, um, you know, you hear so much nowadays about like mental health, you know, it's, especially here in, in the States, that's become kind of like a buzzword. So with all the research and with your whole career, I mean, what can you say to that of, of like, I often talk about, you know, the choice to be happy, that, that it's a decision to, to take that positive outlook and make any experience, you know, what you think of it. Um, are, are people just, is there a natural wiring in our brain where we could have, uh, you know, more of a disposition to that outlook versus a negative outlook or where does like our, the biology actually start to kind of play into that? Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful question. And yeah, it's quite a complex answer to be honest. There's lots of different ways you can look at it. One, one of them is neuroplasticity, which is a fairly recent discovery um, in relation to the idea that we, we our brains are plastic throughout our lives so it keeps changing um, and our IQ um, and all the wiring keeps changing throughout our lives so we can change our brains even into our 70s and 80s based on what we do and what we don't do um, and so the, the term use it or lose it not only works for your muscles, but also works for your brain. So the areas of your brain that you're using and that you're activating a lot become stronger and the areas that you're not using become weaker and slowly atrophy. So if you're if you're constantly happy and in happy situations, you're more likely to see happiness around you. Um, and so therefore those, those neurons which activate those centers of your brain, which are involved in making you happy or making you content are more likely to activate. So therefore, they'll be more likely to activate <laughs> even in situations which might not be as as pleasant. So that's a really important thing to remember is you've got to 
put yourself in situations which are going to make you happy so that you're constantly wiring your brain up to be happy to activate those areas so that they'll continue to activate when when it's a little bit more stressful than it would be otherwise. The other thing um, is that we are wired up um, to socialise and our brains automatically. So most of what we do is habitual. You probably talked about this before, but about we think about somewhere between 40 and 70% of what we do every day is habitual. So we do it automatically. We don't think about it. And the reason we do it automatically is that uh, our working memory, the area of our brain which is involved in what we're consciously aware of and what we're thinking about at any one time is really limited. And it's only it's limited to like what we call seven slots. And those seven slots mean that you can only hold six five or six things in your in your in your working memory at any one time and then you need a couple more to actually work on those to actually think about things or to or to do things and so on that means that most of what we do and most of what we perceive is automatic so perceiving facial expressions is automatic perceiving body language is automatic and all of those things we do automatically through what we call a mirror neuron system so we automatically activate areas of our brain which are motor areas, which are associated with what you're actually seeing. So if someone smiles at you, then the area of your brain associated with smiling activates, the muscles associated with smiling activate to a sub-level. And so therefore you feel the way they feel. You feel happy and you understand that they're happy, which means of course it's contagious. So if you're around people who are smiling all the time, then you're happier than if you're around people who are sad all the time. If you're around people who are sad all the time, you're going to be sadder because of that. So surround, also surrounding yourself with people who have positive, positive dominion mm -hmm. and also surrounding yourself with people who are all, always happy is actually going to make you happier, even if, if you don't want to be. So that's another important aspect to it. So, you know, as... A leader having people around you who are always positive is going to make you more positive just through that mirroring effect that actually happens and that's automatic and we can't actually do anything about it so it's really important to do that because if you're surrounded by negative people you're going to be more negative because of that automatic mirroring yeah that's the, i mean that's interesting so it's kind of like that snowball effect where you know you start to get a little happy then you get much more happier and on and on um so some yeah. of that momentum there What's um it kind of in the same vein, uh, you know, you hear so much. And again, I'm at least speaking from and maybe this is an international issue. I know it is here, at least in America, um, but antidepressants are uh, more than common. Uh, I mean, they're they seem almost like they're everywhere now. For so many folks, it just seems natural, you know, that 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 would be a solution to just kind of getting into a rut. What are maybe some of your comments on that? Like, what exactly is that doing to the brain? Is it good or is it bad or is it is it neither? Is it just a temporary thing? Um, you know, how does that kind of play into this? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so it's not it's not great. Like the, the evidence shows that the more you use those medications, then the more likely you're going to need to use those medications. So you do get hooked on those medications. The other problem is that they don't, we don't really understand how they work very well. Um, and what they're basically doing is just dampening down all of your emotions. So you don't feel as happy either. So you lose your happiness as well as you losing the, the, the sadness that you're getting. So therefore you're not as motivated overall and you're not constantly 
using that happiness and so therefore that happiness area also atrophies as does the sadness area so you sort of become in the middle all the time rather than having any sort of um opportunities to be really happy which personally i'd rather be really happy occasionally um than than to dampen that down the other i mean what we've got to realize is that we are social animals so we're, we're you know as a course a connected species and so our brain has actually evolved over millions of years um and we have a really large brain so that we can actually connect so that we can spend time with each other and so that we can actually understand each other but socializing is complicated and so you need a really really um big large brain to actually do it and that's why we have a large brain and actually socializing activates more of our brains than anything else we do and it actually makes us happier than anything else we can do so actually sitting down and talking to someone someone you trust is actually better for your mental health than any drug we have these days so that's actually a better way of treating things like you know depression or anxiety or stress than any drug we have um, so, you know, we need to actually spend more time with each other. We need to spend more time face to face in real life, actually talking to each other um, and touching each other because you touch actually touching appropriately, of course. But touch actually activates a whole bunch of areas of your brain that you don't get when you're online like we are at the moment and also releases oxytocin, which is really important, both from a mental health point of view, but also for connecting and actually trusting someone. So spending time with people um, and actually, you know, being... Uh, intimate with people, not not as in sexually intimate, just just actually trusting them, being vulnerable with them, talking to them about your problems is actually a better way of handling mental health issues that aren't at the clinical level, that aren't at the severe level where you know um, you need to be hospitalised. Is is better than any drug we've got out there, and that's what we should be really focusing on. And that's what you know. I, mm. That's why I talk about you know keeping our brains healthy rather than mental health issues. Because once you get to those significant issues, then then we've got an issue, uh, and we don't really have any way of getting back from that. So we really want to yep. keep our brains healthy by spending more time with each other. Yeah, I, I agree. I I love that, and I share a similar sentiment. I feel like there should be. Um, almost like you need to exhaust every uh, possible outlet before it comes to medication. At least that's, and I'm no expert in this, but uh, in, in kind of like in line with that, do, do you find, I know you mentioned that being with one another, talking with one another is a huge cure of sorts. Um, what about exercise, meditation, yoga, music, um, video games? I mean, can you kind of point to maybe is is there something that it's like hey this is if you had to do one thing you know maybe this is what you should give a try to yeah if you if you got to do one thing it'd be spending time with somebody else you trust and actually talking to them that that activates more of our brain and is better for our for our brains than anything else we can do um then you've also got um, exercise is really good because then you, you you get other neurotransmitters released after you do exercise. So that's also a really positive thing. But you don't have to go out and run a marathon. Or, you, know, you don't have to be able to sprint or do things like that. Just going for a walk um, for 30 minutes each day is actually really positive impact on your brain and, and on your body as well so you know just getting up and walking so it doesn't matter how fit you are you can actually do that and of course you can combine the two so go for a walk with someone that you like and chat to them as you're walking along is you know you get the double whammy of both having the exercise and having the socialization so that to me i think is better than anything else we actually have um got it 
out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I want to get into, you know, the book and some of your research in a moment, but just to piggyback on that. So we have going for a walk with someone that you know and trust that you can talk with. And then another thing we all love to do is maybe do both of those with a cup of coffee in our hand. Um, (laughs) Now, where, if I could ask, where does that fit into the mix? Is that introducing a stimulant slash drug through caffeine or is that still kind of fair play you know that you know we're not doing anything habit forming or some of what you alluded to earlier yeah that's that's a great question i'm i'm, I'm a great lover of coffee i probably drink okay. too much coffee um so i'm not going to criticize anybody who drinks coffee um and i love coffee i, I most of the research well all the research now now is is suggesting that having a varied diet and having varied what you actually put in your mouth is actually the best way and is the healthiest way to actually live so the more variable your diet and the more different things that you're actually consuming is the best thing so having coffee occasionally or having coffee once a day or whatever is okay as long as you're having lots of other things as well and you're not just drinking coffee rather than anything else but what we've got to remember about the brain is that anything that affects the brain like caffeine or drugs or um alcohol and so on is that it's basically there's there's chemicals in whatever it happens to be that you're taking that fit into receptors in the brain which actually usually would would have accepted neurotransmitters and so what it's doing is just an artificial way of activating the brain so from that point of view it's it's quite natural drinking coffee or anything else that we're actually doing what we've got to control is not doing too much of it so things like drugs and so on work because there's a lot more of that chemical than what is in the normal in normally in your brain whereas when you're drinking coffee it's not much more than what is actually in your brain anyway so it's not going to have a huge impact unless you're doing it constantly or if you're drinking some of those drinks that have huge amounts of caffeine that are well above what you would have in tea or coffee and so yeah, having just coffee is, is not a problem. What I would suggest is probably avoiding anything that has a large amount of caffeine in it, such as some of the drinks that are now out there, um, which, which would have a negative, really negative effect on your brain. Got it. Interesting. So, Mark, I know you talk a lot about in your new book, some of your research on how important it is for organizations to create a healthy brain and uh, focus on their environment and culture and how the two play together. Can you just share a little bit of your insights on that? Yeah, it's. I think it's something that organisations are becoming much more aware of. But I think that it doesn't matter what area you're working in. The, the most important asset that you have is your brain and the brains of your employees or the brains of the people you're working with, um, because that's what you know. Innovation, creativity, but just work gets done because brains are working well. And so we need to be more more aware of how we can keep them healthy um, and how we do that is is a giving them a rest at times you know you look at the, the formula one um, teams around the world they don't thrash those cars 24 hours a day they test them and they train with them but when they're not doing that of course they they, they actually look after them and so we need to do that with our brains as well we need to have time out and one of the biggest problems i think in a lot of organizations and with a lot of people at the moment is that we're all really really busy but we're less productive now than we've ever been and so we need to think about that and and stop being busy and start being productive 
Um, one way to do that is is to give time out. And so a lot of organisations around the world now, um, and in fact, a lot of some countries now in Europe are, are banning companies from emailing their staff after hours. So having times when when staff get emails and then having times when they can actually log off and spend time away from their emails is a really positive way of doing that and, and has been shown to actually increase productivity during the working hours um, and, and, and gives these employees this time to, to reset and their brains to reset. So saying, you know, within your organisation, we're only going, to, only going to email each other between these hours and then after that, you're not allowed to check your email and you're not allowed to email anyone else. And I'm not going to email anyone else. It's really important, of course, for the leader or the CEO or the board of um, directors to do it as well, because if they're not doing it, then of course, everyone else thinks that they should be doing it as well. So doing something like that is really important. Also batching emails. So actually only having emails going to staff and having all of the organisations emails only coming out, say two times or three times a day, is, has also been shown to increase or improve mental health. So mental health is really negatively affected when you're getting emails all the time because you're constantly stressed. Um, another thing which we talked about earlier is, of course, you, your working memory, that area of your brain, which is actually involved in your consciousness and what you're actually doing, is really limited. Um, and so you can't actually multitask. What, what we're doing, our brains are incapable of multitasking. What we're doing is switching from one task to another um, when we're trying to do multiple things at a time. So every time your phone dings or every time you know you switch and look at your team's um, group or every time uh, you look at a, a website rather than doing what you're actually doing, that involves you task switching. And every time you task switch, every time your attention gets caught by something else, you lose the last 90 seconds of what you were doing. So every time you get a ding on your phone or every time a little thing comes up on your screen um, as a one or a two on your email or on your social media or on your teams or whatever you're using, that means you're losing the last 90 seconds of your work um, or what you were thinking about, which is really bad for productivity. But it also is really draining on your attentional network. And so that causes a lot of stress as well. So decreasing all those distractions is really important as yeah. well so having time where people can actually concentrate can actually think about one thing at a time and not being distracted by all those other things is really important as well and we know that just having a phone beside you turned off um, decreases your intelligence and decreases your working memory capacity so having you know employees put their phones away or lock them away somewhere while they're actually trying to work on something or while they're trying to concentrate is going to increase their working memory capacity, their intelligence um, and their mental health. So those are a few little tips. Another one is um, mm. using Pomodoro technique, um, which is all over the internet these days, but it's basically you set a timer and you concentrate on one thing for 25 minutes. And during that time, you only do one thing and you get rid of all your other distractions. And you have the timer so you can actually see it. And after the 25 minutes, when the beeper goes off, you stand up and you just move around for five minutes. And then you go back to that task for another 25 minutes. If you do that, they, they recommend four you do it four times. And that's two hours of really concentrated work. And you actually feel really good afterwards because you've actually achieved something for the day. Um, 
And then after that two hours, then you have a longer break where you can do other things. So just check your email or check your teams or check Google or whatever you want to do. Yeah, it's been shown to be the most productive way to actually spend your day. And, and it really is awesome. I do that for two hours every morning and I get more done during that time than I do during the rest of my day. Yeah, I would believe it because I, I mean, I'm I'm a victim of the emails like so many other people are. And it's uh, <laughs> it's crazy because I mean, when you do have those two hours where you just feel like you're in the zone, you're just, you know, checking off one thing after the next or you're you're writing or you're doing your best work. Uh, it's such a great feeling. And then conversely, it's the worst thing in the world when it's like two hours go by and you look back or you tell someone what you did and you, you almost can't even name it. It's like, it just, I don't know what I did. It just kind of um, time passed by. But the yeah, question absolutely. I have uh, on, the, on the emails, um, you know, some people might say, hey, if I've got a packed day, you know, I'm a business owner, I've got a, a thousand different things I'm dealing with. You know, if I say, okay, you know what, I'm not going to answer my emails for another two hours, and then I'll go take a peek. And then when they do, they're just absolutely flooded with emails that they have to catch up on. Um, do you find that it's almost like rather than just kind of this lingering stress, now they almost just have maybe none for a while, but then this huge spike of like, how am I ever going to, you know, overcome this? But yeah, 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 I get what you mean. But I, I find that when I, when I'm working with people, there is that to begin with, like they're, they're all and they're actually anxious, even when they're not checking their emails, because they're sure. like, emails are, are building up. And it's something that you've already established in your brain. We we're talking about that before that you, you your brain changes. And so we've got these really strong connections saying, I, I've got to check my email, I've got to check my email, because you used to do that all the time. But once you get rid of that, once you've done it for a week or two, you during that two hours, that you're not doing it. You, you actually forget about it completely. And as you said, you get into this really good zone where you're actually concentrating. And then when you get back to your emails, it's almost like you don't want to be there um, and you just want to get through them. And so you tend to get, I do anyway, tend to get through my emails quicker because I'm like, I'm just dealing with them. Um, whereas a lot of people, I think, will look at emails and not deal with them straight away um, and then have the stress of, I've got to go back to that email I've got to, and have this huge, you know, long list of emails that they've read but not dealt with. Whereas yeah. I think once you get into that zone where you're like, I've got these two hours and now I've only got 20 minutes where I've got to get through my emails, you tend to just deal with them, get them out of the way and move on rather than on this slow thing where you're you're dealing with one every five minutes or whatever um, and not actually dealing with them properly or you might be dealing with them properly, but you're not getting anything done and so you're more stressed. Um, so I've found, you know, everyone I've worked with has, has found it stressful to begin with and more stressful to begin with. But then after a week or two, and you know, it's just like, you know, I've been on a roller coaster. It's like, whoa, this is so much fun um, because I'm getting stuff done. I'm feeling like I'm productive. My emails are getting done when when I want to get them done, rather than when everybody else is contacting me. Um, and, and I'm much more productive. So at the end of the day, they're like, wow, I ticked off all this stuff, um, and I got rid of most of my emails, which is great. And it, uh, that's, a, I think, a great insight. And can you maybe share some other tips there too, kind of uh, in that same vein where, um, you know, let's say number one, we, we have the boss that says, okay, no more emailing after hours. And you're not going to get punished if you're not checking your email after hours, kind of creating some of that culture. Uh, you mentioned, you know, getting up, just taking a quick walk, you know, every half hour or so for a few minutes. 
Um, any other things you think that can really boost productivity through again, that, that brain health? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's lots of good ones. So, um, another one is, is having, um, decreasing your meetings by rather than a lot of organizations these days will have, um, meetings or, or um, yeah, meetings where they'll have someone come and present, or that one of the one of the group members will present to the group, um, and then they'll have a little talk about what what the, the, that presentation was all about. Rather than doing that, technology is really awesome these days, and I don't think we're using it optimally in any any way, shape, or form. And we, I think we're we're using it really poorly. But one way way to do that, rather than having a meeting where you have someone come and present, get the person to record their presentation and email it to everyone a couple of days before. Then people can choose when they're actually going to watch that presentation. And then when the meeting comes around, the meeting can be much br briefer because everyone's already watched the presentation. Everyone already has their, their questions. They could even email the person who did the presentation beforehand with a few questions, um, which they can answer. So it's, it's all out there and that can be group email. Um, and so therefore you can keep meetings to a much shorter duration. Plus people can choose when they're watching the presentation. Plus we know that innovation and creativity and, and occurs when you're actually sleeping rather than during the day. So if you go into a meeting and someone hits you with this new presentation that you haven't thought about before and you haven't slept on, then you won't be anywhere near as innovative and creative in relation to what you're being told to, to think about. And so if you have the presentation a couple of days before, then you sleep on it a couple of nights, the ideas and everything come at night during REM sleep. And so you'll have a lot more ideas and a lot more um, great ways of tackling whatever problem is or whatever the new idea is or whatever the new cult or whatever it is that you, that person's presenting on. So that's another way of actually allowing your staff to do the presentation when it's best for them, look at the presentation when it's best for them, to come up with great ideas because they're sleeping on it and, and you've been uh, going through that REM sleep, which is really good for creativity. And then um, keeping your meetings to a short period of time so that people can actually be more productive um, and get more done rather than be sitting in, in large meetings or um, those sorts of things. So that, that's another way to actually improve Yep. Yeah, that's, I think, another one, too, that people just can't stand having the meetings on top of meetings to talk about other meetings. And it's like, you know, you just, <laughs> it sucks away so much of our time. But one yeah, thing yeah. you did mention, just to kind of push back a little bit on this, because I could see, you know, the good and the bad. Um, you mentioned that so many of these creative ideas come to us, you know, when we're not thinking about it, or even when we're sleeping. And so, you know, I have three books under my belt. And one thing that I can attest to has been very helpful, but it could lend to some stress is you're exactly right where the middle of the night or, or you're lying down, you're staring at the ceiling, and then it's like, aha, this this perfect idea of how to wrap up the chapter or just something that you got to fit in there that you know people are going to love. And so it's like when you get those ideas, at least me, I would go, I'd grab my phone and then I would go to the note section and I would just jot down that quote or that that thought that I had so that it doesn't just slip my mind. So I think that's very good. But then for the person saying, you know, I don't want to be wired all the time. Should you resist that? Should you not do that and say, no, this is downtime. We're not going there. We're not opening up Pandora's box again. Um, you know, when do you turn it on or turn it off, I guess? Yeah, I have um, a, a notepad beside my bed and a, a, 
a lot of people I've talked to do the same thing. They'll have a notepad and a pen, go old school beside their bed. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever they wake up with a thought, they just write it in the notepad and then they go back to sleep. And then in the morning, they check their notepad for all the good ideas they had during the night. Sometimes I don't even remember that I've written something down. Um, but that's a good way to, to remove the technology, but still have the notes so that you can actually deal with them the next day. Um, and we know that actually writing um, with a notepad rather than typing uh, um, results in better memory retention for the information that you're trying to retain. Um, and again, re results in better creativity and innovation if you're actually writing with notepad and pen. So um, that's a way to get around having the device in your room because yeah, I'm, I, I think we should never have devices in our bedrooms. They should always be out of the bedroom because of the fact that you've got the blue light um, and you've got the stress associated with the device. Um, and we know that 10% of our attention, even when the devices are turned off, um, is on your on your device so it actually affects your sleep as well just because you're always attending to it because that's work right your, your phones these days for most of us um especially entrepreneurs is their phone um and so having it there beside you is sort of like having your work there beside you constantly um yeah. when you're trying to sleep so yeah get rid of the phone and, and just have a notepad there and just write a couple of notes and you'll find you go straight back to sleep because you've written it down and you'll actually then dream about it more um, so you'll have more good ideas while you, because of that, because of the writing it down. What if you don't want to think about it anymore? <laughs> what if you're like, I'm, I'm tired of work. I'm tired of writing this book. I just want to, <laughs> you know, hit the pillow and, and drift into never, never land. You know, does that yeah. exercise kind of perpetuate the, the thing that's plaguing you? No. So it actually gets rid of it because you're actually writing it down. So <laughs> We actually, so which is really interesting, there's a lot of research now showing that when we type things or when we put things into our devices, we tend to then think of it as something that um, not as permanent. So it's not actually something that you can, um, that, that is permanently in the world. It's, it's something that's out in in you know, the, this surreal world. Um, and so we do tend to keep thinking about it. When we write things down on paper, we see it as being in the real world. So it's actually physical. So it's actually there. And so we're much more likely to go to sleep. So if if you do have trouble going to sleep at night, one great thing to do is just uh, get an iPad and just write down all your worries. And because you've written them down on a piece of paper, I mean, it's got to be on paper and in the real world, you see it as, okay, I've put it there and it's away and it'll still be there in the morning. Whereas if you tend to write it down you know, on a computer, we see that as something which isn't isn't real. And so therefore, it's something that we continue to worry about in our brains. Um, so yeah, writing down on paper, on a, on a notepad, will actually help you sleep rather than affect your sleep. Whereas doing it on um, some sort of device won't get rid of that thought yeah. for later. Yeah. Huh. I think you've converted me. I might go to the notepad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. And so, you know, some questions I, I have. Um, you, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, you, you talk about some of these strategies and like, as I hear them, I'm like, you know, that makes sense. I want to try that. You, you're a neuroscientist. Is when people say, oh, this made me sleep better. This made me feel happier. This removed this stress. A lot of the things that you're referring to, is it just based on polls that they they polled a thousand people to one do this, the other do that? 
or are you actually, you know, studying the brain and, and mapping the brain, seeing what's happening? Yeah, no. So a lot of it, most of it's actually done by the neuroimaging. It's been really interesting because the last 25 years we've had neuroimaging, which has just basically been able to look at a human brain. Um, and so prior to that, it was all behavioral. You know, we were all just we, we, we were trying to infer what was going on based on what was happening behaviorally um, through surveys and through reaction times and things like this. Last 25 years has been a huge change in the way we see the, the way our brains work because we've had uh, um, MRIs and we've had um, EEG, which is two different ways of looking at human brains and has has meant that we can now put someone in a scanner and look at what happens when they're, you know, taking notes on a, not on a notepad ra rather than typing or what happens when, um, you know, after they've batched emails rather than um, actually uh, getting them randomly and so on. So this, most of what I talk about um, is based on uh, the neuroimaging and, th and that's actually shown us in a lot of cases that what we thought was actually wrong. So it's it sort of turned around a lot of these ideas that we had because but, before that, most of it was subjective, right? Most of it was based on us actually asking people and yeah. people, most of us don't really know what's going on in our brain well we don't we none of us know what's going really going on in our brains um and so yeah using your own imaging means that we can actually get to those those um the the real things that are happening um and and how we can actually improve those and that's exactly what i wanted to ask you you said that a lot of times the neuroimaging was showing that you were wrong um mm. can you can you point out anything where like we thought oh you know the polls say do this this is the way to proceed with your day or how to think or whatever um, but the neuroimaging was conflicting and it said no that's actually not the right approach um, are there any that come to mind that you could um, share with us that it was kind of like enlightening like that yeah so so the, the sleep stuff was really cool so there's been a huge amount of um, research done on on sleep um, and looking at what actually happens during sleep. And of course, we used to think that sleep was just this way of resetting your brain. And so when you got up in the morning, it was, you know, you got rid of all the bad neurotransmitters and and your brain had had a rest. And so therefore you you could keep going. But we, we actually now know based on neuroimaging that your brain during certain periods is actually more active during sleep than it is during the day. And so the sleep isn't actually your brain's not actually resting during that time. It's actually doing a huge amount of work and really important work during sleep. And during certain stages, what you're actually doing is you're running through um, what you did during the day and then going through different scenarios as to how you could have done it better. And so you're actually learning uh, during those sleep periods, uh, which is why sleep's really, really important for innovation and creativity because you go through what you did and then you go through different ways if you, you could have done that. Um, which is why, you know, when you were talking about writing the book, you would write in chapters and so on. And then you come to areas where you weren't really sure about it or you weren't, you know, 100% on what you'd written. And then during the night, your brain would be going through other ways of doing that, other ways of writing that. Um, you're not aware of it, but it's happening in your long-term memory. And so that's why, you know, the next day you might get up and you might have, you know, find it much easier to write certain chapters or certain things or a couple of days later or whatever um and so 
that's something that we now know a lot more about and we understand sleep a lot better and we understand how important sleep is um, and getting those you know six to eight hours is really really crucial and especially for teenagers and kids so we now know that teenagers learn a lot about how to interact with people um, and how to understand emotions and empathy and social, um, emotional intelligence and all these things. Uh, during sleep, they learn a lot of that from stuff. And so sleep's really crucial for us as adults, but also, you know, really, really crucial for teenagers and younger kids. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the really cool things that we found out from from the neuroimaging. In question on that, I don't know if it's your exact domain, but this is something I've never understood. So me personally, I, I can go to sleep and I can't, I don't know if I don't dream or if I can just never remember a dream for the life of me. I, I could go months and months and months without being able to tell you, oh, I had this dream. My wife, on the other hand, she'll wake up every single morning and she'll literally detail two, three, maybe four dreams that she had. And she'll tell me like, oh, I couldn't sleep. I was just dreaming all night. It was just I couldn't get any rest. I just kept dreaming and dreaming. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing in the world to me. <laughs> is is there a difference there? Like, have they ever done that in the neuroimaging of like, is there a difference between someone that that knows their dreams and someone that's like, I just don't think I dream at all? Yeah, so we all dream unless you, there's, there is a disorder, which means you don't dream. But everybody, unless you have that disorder, everybody dreams. <laughs> I hope you I don't. Would know, <laughs> you would know that if you had that, Disorder. Um, so it's uh, dreaming happens during our REM sleep, which is one of the five stages of sleep. Um, and everyone does it. It's just some of us, we don't know why, but some people remember their dreams a lot more vividly than other people. Um, I actually remember, as an aside, when I was at MIT, I had um, a, an undergraduate come and work with me. Uh, and he, during his, during high school, actually, um, got all the bits and pieces to make an EEG system, um, which he could put on his head to record uh, his brainwaves while he was sleeping. And your brainwaves change when you go to, into REM sleep. And then he hooked that up to, he, uh, he had um, a whole bunch of trans um, things to, to hook it up to, to an alarm clock so that when he went into REM sleep, the alarm clock would go off so that he would wake up um, so that he would then remember his dreams because the dreams were happening during that REM sleep. And he was really interested in dreams and he used to write notes. Um, but also um, what um, Edison supposedly, and this is anecdotal and what I've read, but supposedly he also um, used to have a nice couch in his laboratory or in his office where he used to work. And whenever he didn't have good ideas, um, he used to sit in his couch and he'd grab a bunch of ball bearings and put them in his hand and then he'd put a saucepan down beside the couch and he'd fall asleep. And when you go to, into REM sleep again, which is this dream state, which is actually when we come up with all these innovative ideas, because dreaming is actually um, going through to the different scenarios that I was talking about before. He'd um, Your muscles relax when you go into that state so that you don't move. Um, and so his muscles would relax. He'd let go of the ball bearings. They'd then fall into the saucepan, which would make a noise, which would wake him up. And that is supposedly when he came up with all his inventions, um, by doing that, by actually set, waking himself up. Because again, he said that he didn't remember his dreams, so he needed to wake himself up in the middle of his dreams so that he would remember what they were so that he could actually come up with all these cool inventions. That is that's such a cool idea. That's yeah. interesting. And so another, I have so many questions here, but um, just for the, the sake of time, there's a couple of big ones I want to hit on. 
Sure. You know, I've dealt with some folks in my industry and others that uh, are some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And it's funny in conversation, I'll see, you know, somebody we're with recommend a book. Oh, you, you got to check this book out or you got to read this story. And then the very smart individual I know will say, you know, thank you for the recommendation, but I just feel like there's no more room in my brain that it's, I'm just overwhelmed with just how much work I'm doing, how much information I'm taking in. Is that true that it's almost like there's only so much memory up there? And if we want to take in a new concept or strategy, we kind of have to delete another one to make room for it. Or is there a way to keep kind of expanding, you know, essentially our knowledge? Yeah, that's great. Great, great question. We, we don't. So the, there's two memory systems. One's a working memory, which we've talked a bit about, which is the one that you're actually aware of um, and it's your consciousness. Um, and then you've got your long-term memory, which we don't have direct access to. So you're not aware of what's in there. And your long-term memory, as far as we're aware and all the research suggests, there's no limit to it. So you can keep filling that up. We haven't found a limit to that yet. Um, and so, no, there's no limit to how much you can get in there. Um, the, 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 the problem is having your working memory, because what has to happen is your working memory, which is what you're aware of, you have to hold information in that working memory for long enough that it sort of gets transferred to this temporary store and then it gets transferred to your long-term memory. So it has to be held in there for long enough. And I think when people are saying, I've got too much in my memory, it's not really that they've got too much in their memory, it's that they've got too much going on in their working memory and so they're always thinking about you know, what they're doing and all the rest of it, that they they can't hold things in there long enough to then get it into that temporary store to go into that long-term memory, which again is why you need to get rid of all the distractions because if you've got it in your working memory um, and then you get distracted, that's why you lose the 90 seconds, right? Because you've got something in your working memory that hasn't yet been transferred to your temporary store and you get distracted, you think about something else, you, um, you know, attend to something else, then you lose everything in your working memory and it doesn't get transferred to that temporary store. But um, but our long-term memory, as far as we're aware of all the research, we haven't found a limit to it yet. Huh. That's That's fascinating. Now, I think one of the things too, you talk about removing distractions, I'm sure that's certainly one step towards improving the situation, but I know there's lots of times where you can be in that perfect environment. You're in your recliner, nobody else is is home. You know, you're just you're relaxing, you're reading, and you find yourself staring at the same page for 15 minutes. Like, <laughs> why do I keep trying to read this page, but I'm not reading it? Um, I guess there's there's the physical distraction, but then there's also just our our mind and being able to try and you know master and calm our mind. Yeah, yeah, that is also a problem. And, and the best thing to do in that scenario, situation or scenario is is to do do something physical. So doing physical activity actually helps to reset your brain. So if you are having that point where you, you just you're not able to concentrate on a book or you're not able to concentrate on your work or whatever, just standing up and you know doing whatever a bunch of squats or uh, you know star jumps or push ups or whatever you're into um, will actually help reset that and help you then concentrate better on what you're doing or doing deep breathing um, because deep breathing we know changes um, your heart rate and so on and so yeah breathing in holding and then breathing out will actually help that as well interesting 
And so I want, maybe if we can fit in one last big pivot here, I'd love to get your take on it. Again, this is maybe not exactly what you do, but I think it's relevant. So one of the, the other buzzwords right now, or acronyms is AI. Artificial intelligence is just, it seems, I talk a lot about this in my book. It seems like it's taking over. It's getting smarter than we realize it is. Um, I know there's no brain to AI, but you know we have these computers essentially that can just problem solve 24 seven, 365 at, at breakneck speed. Um, where maybe you seeing the applicability of that in medicine or in neuroscience? Uh, and is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Or is it just like an unknown thing at this point? Yeah, so I, I've been using what they call artificial intelligence. I mean, we don't actually have artificial intelligence yet. Um, intelligence requires you to be able to generate a, a new thought. Um, and these programs that are around at the moment can't create new thoughts. They're just grabbing old thoughts or putting together old thoughts that are already on the internet. Um, so it's not really artificial intelligence. It's based on um, support vector machines. And I started using those um, when I was at MIT. So 2007, no, 2005, um, I was one of the first to actually use it with neuroimaging data. So we were actually using these support vector machines, uh, we call them, let's call them artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence algorithms to determine what um, someone was thinking or, or what someone was seeing based on their brain data rather than based on what you know we were actually asking them and um, so that's that's been amazing and that's really um, given us a lot of answers in how our brains work and how our brains create you know the reality that we see and how our brains that, that a lot of the um, sleep stuff that I was talking about is based on using these these algorithms to, to work out how the brain's doing what it's doing. So that's that's amazing. My, my wife is actually also a professor um, and she does a lot of work in, um, she has done a lot of work in looking at uh, mammograms. Um, so um, scans of women's breasts to look for uh, cancers and using both clinicians and using uh, artificial what you know we call artificial intelligence um, and that's been amazing too you know that's really improved um, some of the uh, ability to diagnose things like um, cancers but it's not as good at, as the real person um, for the more difficult ones so you know the uh, more abnormal ones so the really good um, are picking up the average and they're really good at picking up the the, the common things in, in things like scans and so on. But they're not good at picking up abnormalities, which is what the humans do better and we all do better, which is really cool um, because there's still going to be a job for us um, in the future. Um, and yeah. it's I don't think it'll ever get to the point where it's able to do that. Um, but we do, yeah, we do need to realise that what it's doing is it's just able to because the computers are getting better, but they're not really getting more sophisticated. So what these things are able to do is they're able to pull a huge, much more data, much more quickly than they've ever been able to do, and then pull out the stuff that's relevant for whatever you want it to do. Um, but it's not actually generating anything new. It is only regurgitating what's already out there. Hmm. Interesting. And so, Mark, I know your your book coming out later this year. It's called The Connected Species, 
Um, maybe as a kind of a conclusion here, can you just share some of what that's about and uh, what readers can expect if they want to get that book? Yeah, thanks. It's um, it's based on well, a lot of the research, well, most of the research I've been doing after over the last 25 years on us as humans um, being, you know, this social species. And we are the most social species um, of any. And that's how we became the alpha, right? That's how we, we ended up where we are on being able to live on on any um, area in the world. And it's through collaboration and it's through understanding and it's through socialization that we've actually become the alpha species. You know, it's not because we're the strongest or the have the biggest brain or the, the, the fastest or anything like that. It's because we're social, because we actually interact with each other. And so over millions of years, well before we had language, because we've only had complex language for about 150,000 years, and most of us have only been able to read and write for the last one or two generations. So it's not because of that. It's because of our socialization. And for millions of years, our brains have developed to actually socialize and to work out who's friend and who's foe. And most of our brain, and we have a large brain, to do that, because that's really, really complex. But at the moment, that's been driven in, in negative ways through things like social media, through the internet, um, through the fact that we're now able to do Zoom and all these things. We're not socializing anywhere much, as much as we used to. And we need to do that because that keeps our brain healthy, that keeps our brain strong. That staves off things like Alzheimer's disease and dementia and, and Parkinson's disease, all these neurodegenerative diseases. It also decreases the likelihood of you have mental health problems like anxiety and depression and um, suicidal tendencies and so on. It also um, can help in, in, in areas like ADHD and so on in neurodevelopmental disorders as well. So we need to be spending more time with each other. We need to realize that we're all connected, right? The computer I use comes from all over the world, right? All the bits and pieces come from everywhere around the world, from all different societies. And I, I, we all need to appreciate that, that all the stuff we use is because of the fact that we're connected across the world. Um, and so, yeah, we need to do that better. Uh, because at the moment, I think we're at a real crossroads. Um, and we we need to determine which way we want to go. And hopefully, uh, you know, we're going to choose to go down the route, which is based on where we've come from, which is being connected and being social um, and, and collaborating and doing more of that so that our brains can continue to be healthy. Because our brains, for the first time in history, our brains are actually getting dumber on average. So every uh, five years or so, they have to readjust the, the IQ tests because in the past, we've always got smarter. But for the last 10 years, we've actually got dumber. Um, and so there's a, there's a real issue there and we need to start thinking about how we're going to improve that. Um, wow, we have, you know, every chapter has lots of tips. Um, every chapter has a nice little summary at the end and has all the research associated with what I'm talking about. Uh, so there's lots of information in there and there's lots of tips that you can actually instigate into your own life or your own organisation um, at the end of each chapter based on what I talk about. That's really cool. I mean, I, I have so many questions around the subject and uh, I guess that's why you wrote a book and we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, definitely. Well, Mark, thank you so much for, for making time. I know uh, over here, it's nighttime over where you're at. It's the crack of dawn. So uh, I'm glad we were able to team up and have this interview. Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks for having me along.
My pleasure. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm Brian Kaderna, and we just had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mark Williams. Be sure to check out his new book uh, later this year, The Connected Species, and we will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.